Good morning, Keystone. Happy New Year. Uh, I realized this week, uh, even though I'm only 32 years old, New Year's is another thing that reminds me I'm getting older. Because as my wife and I talked about, like, well, what are we going to do on New Year's Eve? We both kind of came to the conclusion of, like, let's just make, home, make sure we're home by 8 o'clock so we can watch football, sit on the couch, and fall asleep. Uh, and I used to look at people like that and think, what's wrong with you? And now it's the opposite. And I think people who stay out till 12 o'clock, like, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? Uh, so it's just one more reminder to me that even though I'm 32, I already feel like I'm getting old. Uh, January 2nd, 2022, I think has loomed large both over Keystone as well as in my own mind for probably the past three years. Because we knew that this would be the date that the transition from Pastor Keith to whoever the next preaching pastor is ultimately takes effect. And I remember in uh, June, this past June, after the congregational vote, people coming up to me and asking, uh, well, well, how do you feel, Kyle? And my answer is, is kind of this, feels good, but nothing's really changed. And so maybe ask me on January 2nd how it feels. Well, January 2nd is here. And so I thought it might be helpful just to start out this morning uh, for you to know a little bit of how I'm feeling on what I think is a unique morning for Keystone. Three things kind of jumped to mind to me as I was reflecting about this this week. Uh, One, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for God's providence in my own life in leading me to this moment. I got to read back through a little bit of some of the journals. Uh, I don't do a great job of journaling, but if I'm really like worked up, then I'll write stuff down. So as I was like wrestling with applying for the preaching pastor and all that, I I wrote stuff down and got to see just God's providence as I look back over every moment for me leading up to this. And I would say I'm also thankful for Pastor Keith and the 28 years of faithful preaching and the legacy that that leaves behind for Keystone, even though he's still here not preaching anymore, and the legacy he's left behind. I would say, number two, I'm excited. The, the reason, one of the main reasons why I felt God was calling me to full-time ministry in the first place was because I love him and love his word and believe his word is powerful and that he speaks through it. My favorite task as a youth pastor for seven years was not pegging students with dodgeballs and death darts, although that was a lot of fun. It was not doing dances or Justin Bieber lip syncs, although I'll miss those, but I'll save you and I won't break any out up here. It was week in, week out, studying God's word and then trying to preach it to teenagers. And so to have preaching be a primary responsibility now makes me really excited. And then I would say, number three, I feel humbled. Maybe even a little bit inadequate, uh, but humbled sounds spiritual, so let's stay with that. Humbled because I know how well Keystone has been fed from the pulpit for 28 years. In part, because of how I benefited from Pastor Keith's preaching for the past nine years of my life. I would say the same thing Brandon said last week that Pastor Keith's preaching has shaped my life and ministry as he's faithfully preached the Bible in a Christ-centered, God-exalting way. 
And, and more so than his preaching and his gifts, honestly, I'd, I'd say his life and the man that God has made him to be is what impacted me as well. That he is a, a man humble and gentle, and yet biblically faithful and courageous. A man who, who always had time for others, including myself, that I could tell you about Fridays, I would knock on his office asking to talk when he was in the depths of preparing a sermon and he would simply give an hour of his time to talk to me. And I, I would guess you have stories like that too. Cared deeply about people and yet wasn't easily swayed by people's opinions. A man who was uh, rooted in a faith in a God who is sovereign over every single aspect of our lives and yet who never got over the fact that this is the same God who gave up his son to come and die and save us. I'm humbled to stand in the place where he stood for so long and to step into the role that I think he fulfilled so well for so long. So that gives you a window into how I feel on what I think is a unique morning for Keystone. And I would guess you have some unique feelings on a morning like this as well. I think changes and transitions bring lots of feelings. And maybe two that stick out to me are are that changes can be kind of both exciting, perhaps, as well as unsettling. We, We might compare it to going out on a boat out to sea. That, that maybe it's a, a little bit exciting. You're going to explore new waters in some sense. But it's also unsettling because the boat rocks a little bit and, and your feet don't feel as sturdy as what they did back on dry land. And, and maybe if it rocks too much, you, you even end up getting seasick. I don't make that comparison to say that I, I hope that my preaching and whatever other changes go throughout this next month, two months, don't, don't make you seasick. That's not what I'm saying. But if you're in that situation, one of the things that's recommended is to look out at the horizon, find some fixed point, some marker, set your eyes on that, and let that settle you, ground you, hold you fast. And so we do this, or I want to do this series called Transitions for the next six weeks, in large part to settle us, ground us, as Keystone goes through some big changes and transitions in this month as well as the coming months. And there's really two ways that I hope that happens. One is by looking at places in the Bible where there were big changes or transitions. Because we are by no means the first or only people to go through a big change in our church. And we can see time and time again where God leads his people through changes and transitions and look at how he shows up and speaks them in powerful ways. And so we'll look at six of those over the next six weeks. And then the the second thing is hopefully to say that while faces may change, whether up front or on staff or whatever it might be, the characteristics, the distinctives that have made Keystone the church that it is don't change. And so by God's grace, we will continue to be a God-glorifying, Bible-saturated, prayer-dependent, gospel-centered, mission-minded, spirit-led church long into the future. But there's another part of this series as well. That, that I would hope that it serves to ground us 
in the midst of all the changes and transitions that we go through in this life, not just in the church, but everything that we go through that changes and transitions. You think about your own life. There are lots of things that change for you. Whether you might be a middle schooler who's about to start high school in the next year, or a high schooler who's about to graduate and head off to college or a gap year or into the workforce, or a young adult who's maybe about to change careers or change the location of where you live, or maybe a parent who's adding to your family or slowly letting your family go as your kids grow up too fast. Or maybe you're someone who's wrestling with, is God calling me to lead my family, take my family in a new direction or a new place? Or maybe you're someone who's nearing retirement and trying to figure out what life looks like for you or what does life look like now that you're an empty nester? Or maybe you're even nearing what you think might be the end of your time on earth and thinking about how can my life make the greatest impact in the years that I have left. We all go through changes and transitions. Some of them planned and expected and some not planned and expected. Because here's the other reality I would say for you, just as maybe you heard Brandon say for himself there. Your life probably hasn't gone exactly how you expected it to go. And, and when you look back 10 years from now, or even a year from now, that will probably be true of however much time has passed. I, I can assure you, as a five-year-old, when someone asked me, what do you want to do when you grow up? My answer was not, I really want to be a preaching pastor. It was probably, I, I want to be a fireman, or a hockey player, or whatever, whatever else I was interested in at that time. And even as a high school senior graduating high school, an appropriate superlative for me probably would have been least likely to ever end up being a preaching pastor. And yet God moves in our lives, brings things about that we never expected. And I would say that's true for you probably too. And it's true for Moses and the Israelites when we find them in Exodus chapter 3, which is where we're going to be this morning. If you want to open up to Exodus 3, 1 through 15. Israel had been providentially led by God down to Egypt about 400 years earlier. And now they find themselves enslaved and oppressed by one of the most powerful rulers in the world, Pharaoh. Life looks hopeless for them. Life looks bleak. Doubtless, they did not expect this to be the case when God brought them down there years earlier. Moses is someone who, as a young boy, miraculously escaped a previous Pharaoh's genocide of Israelite boys. Pharaoh's daughter saved him, and he was raised among Egyptian royalty. Until he decided to defend his people, kill an Egyptian slave master, and then he had to run for his life. And now we find him 40 years later in the lands east of Egypt. He's a shepherd. He has a wife, two kids. In some ways, he's carved out a comfortable life for himself after the debacle of Egypt. And yet everything is about to change for Moses and Israel when we pick up in Exodus 3, verse 1. So let me pray for us first, and then we'll read those verses. Father, we know that you see us. 
that you hear us, that you know us. And yet we recognize that we cannot see you, hear you, or know you apart from you opening our eyes, apart from your spirit helping us. And so we ask this morning, as we do every week, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, would open our eyes, would open our ears, and would help us to know and love and worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a, fire, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, But I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I, come to, if I come to the people of Israel and they say to me, or say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. One of the quotes that you heard Pastor Keith give often, and that you even heard Brandon mention last week, is a quote from A.W. Tozer that says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Another quote that follows after that one later in the same chapter is this. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. I believe one of the reasons 
In fact, the, the primary reason that God takes us through changes in our lives, changes we expect and changes we don't expect, is to give us a big, high, massive view of him. And, and that's the main idea that's going to drive this morning as we look at this passage. That God takes us through changes to enlarge our view of him. And, and conversely, I think that one of the things that can settle us in the midst of changes, as the ground might feel a little bit unsteady, is to have a God who looms massively over all of our changes. We could maybe think about it in this way. Maybe it's an experience that happened to you even as a child, that you're at the ocean or you're at the beach and you decide to go play in the ocean. And you go out and you're jumping waves or you're body surfing or just enjoying the ocean. And about 10 minutes go by and you turn back around to look at the beachfront and you don't recognize anything. What's happened in that moment? The, the current has pulled you downstream or down the ocean to a place where you don't recognize. And so what do you do? You instinctively look for that rainbow-colored umbrella that your parents put up earlier in the day. And what seemed unimportant or insignificant earlier in the day all of a sudden becomes the thing that looms largest out of everything else because that's what you look to to ground you. That's what you look to to steady you, to help you. And I would say this is what God does in the midst of our changes. That, that he, we can so easily, myself included, have a small view of God, insignificant view of God. And he shakes us from the dullness, the, the apathy of a small view by taking us through unsettling waters and then looming massively over them as our hope and our refuge and the one that holds us steady. And, and I, I would say we can track how this happens with Moses and the Israelites. That first of all, we, we could see from this passage, God is a surprisingly unsettling God. Moses is, when we met him, currently serving as a shepherd for Jethro. And, and he takes his flock and goes into Horeb and eventually ends up on a mountain that's going to be later called the Mount Sinai. And, and while he's there, he sees this bush that's burning, but not consumed, not burned up. This is where, if Moses lives in the 21st century, he's pulling out his phone and opening up TikTok because he's about to become famous. No one's ever seen something like this, a bush burning, yet not consumed. But he doesn't have a phone, so he simply says, all right, I'm going to look at this. I'm going to turn aside and see this. And that's where God stops him in his tracks and says, wait, Moses, take off your sandals. Don't come any closer. This is holy ground by virtue of me being here. And we see Moses respond immediately with fear and reverence, cowering down before God, recognizing that to be in the presence of a holy God is unsettling. Unsettling not just because he's different than us in character, but also different than us in what he does, in his plans, in what he carries out in this life. That, that first of all, God's direction for our lives will unsettle us at times. We have to realize 
the scope of what God is calling Moses to here. He's telling Moses, go to the most powerful ruler of the most powerful nation in the world and tell him to do something that's going to completely collapse his economy, take away his workforce. It sounds insane. Moses rightly staggers before what God's asking him to do. That God's calling him out of a life of, in some ways, probably comfort and ease that he's gotten used to, to a life of challenge and risk. And it's the same thing that he does over and over and over again in our lives, just maybe not to that scale. That he calls us from what is comfortable and easy to do what is challenging and risky in obedience to him. And if as God directs your life, there are times where you feel fearful, you wonder, why is he asking me to do that? I would say, you're not odd. That's a pretty normal response at times as God directs our lives and as we seek to obey and follow him. His direction is unsettling. And his design for our lives at times is unsettling. We, we find the Israelites. This passage comes on the heels of Exodus 2, 23 through 25 where the Israelites are crying out to God, God, deliver us from slavery. Deliver us from oppression. We're suffering here. To which we should stop and ask, why are they enslaved in the first place? Because God brought them down to Egypt. That's what Genesis 46.3 tells us. God told Jacob, hey, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. Take your whole family with you as well. And years before that, he told Abraham, as he's promising Abraham to get, make him a great nation, hey, Abraham, your descendants are going to suffer under affliction for hundreds of years. The Israelites are not hurting. They're not going through affliction apart from God's plan, but as a part of his plan for them. Like, that's, this is unsettling. A God who not just allows but brings about affliction in our lives? That's not a tame God. That's not a God that we own and can somehow bend to our own ways. I'm reading a a book right now at times to my son, Oliver, Uh, and it's kind of a dumb book maybe. Um, It's a book about a kid named Wilfred who comes across a moose that he decides he's going to make this moose his pet. And so he names this moose Marcel. Uh, And he's got all these rules for what it means to be a good pet for Marcel. Rules like, uh, don't be too loud while he's playing his music. Uh, Protect him from the rain. Don't go too far away. And and the rules that this moose inevitably ends up breaking. Until the day that the moose runs away, and then eventually the story ends with the moose coming back. But there's this great wording in it towards the end where it says, Wilfred admitted he never really owned the moose anyway. God brings us to places in our lives where we realize over and over and over again, we do not own him. And in fact, vice versa, he owns us. I want, if I'm honest, I want a God who makes my life as comfortable and easy as possible. That sounds better. I want a God who does whatever I want for my life. I want a God who, I come to church, I pray, read my Bible, And then he responds, and he just gives me kind of what I want. And I would guess you feel the same way at times. And we're confronted over and over and over again with that is not the God of the Bible. 
That's the God of casual American religion that we make in our image at times and then expect to give us the American dream. And as much as I want that at times, as much as you may want it at times, it's really good that God doesn't do that. Because he's about so much more than simply our temporary comfort and ease. And it's good for us to remember that when life is unsettling. When God shakes our lives up a little bit. When we walk through changes. When we find the path that we went down is more difficult than we thought it might be. It's really good for us to remember that. Because it's unsettling to realize God is a God who's not ultimately about our comfort and ease, but something more. He's a God who owns us, who we don't own. But that only remains unsettling if we fail to get the picture of God that Moses gives in the rest of these verses, or that God gives in the rest of these verses as he reveals himself to Moses. First, we we find that God is a surprisingly unsettling God. Or sorry, that was the first point. I got myself lost. God is a deeply personal God. God is a deeply personal God. He talks about his relationship with the Israelites. And here's the words that he says. I have seen my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them. If you step back and you get a picture of this, it's like a God who's a father looking over his little daughter and hears every cry and sees everything that happens and is just ready to stoop down and help her and pick her up. And we can see a couple things from God's personal fatherly nature as we look at these verses and the ones that follow. First, that God is a God who bends down to our level. Bends down to our level. These, these verses talk about God what almost feels like in an appropriate way. That he sees that he hears, that he bends down. We should go, why why is that? God isn't giving us a physical description of himself, right? Like seven foot five, blue eyes, big ears, huge heart. What, What he's doing is he's bending down to our level. He's doing what he does all throughout the Bible in accommodating himself to us so that we can understand him. John Calvin has a great illustration for what God does in Scripture and what he does here. He, he talks about it. He's like a, a, an adult who bends down and talks to a child in children's talk. He, he says these words. He says, For who, even of slight intelligence, does not understand that as nurses commonly do with infants, God is one in measure to lisp in speaking to us. I love that picture of God. Like a God who bends down into our faces and talks baby talk to us. Because it's both humbling to me, and yet it's an incredible picture of how God bends down and cares for us. That's an amazing God. And not just does he bend down to our level, but he also bursts with compassion for us. He tells tells Moses, I'm coming for my people. Not because they're worthy, not because they're deserving, because they're my people and I care for them. It's it's almost this image of if we could get God into a ninth grade biology class and we could prick his finger, what what would come bursting out? Compassion. And that's not to minimize any of his other attributes, but, but even when he 
tells Moses later, hey, I'm going to reveal my glory to you. I'm going to pass by you. What, what are the first words that he says to Moses? In Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yes, he's going to go on to talk about his justice and vengeance against sin, but what does he abound in? Steadfast love, compassion. And when he does come as a man and goes through far more than just a finger prick, but sheds his blood, why does he do that? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 26, 28, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That, that his blood is poured out for us because he has compassion for us, bursts with compassion for us. And not only that, but he binds himself to us. Exodus is the story of God keeping his promises. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now he's going to keep them. And those promises are for the good of his people to take them out of Egypt into a broad and fertile land. And for his people today, his promises are to take us one day from a broken world into a new heavens and new earth to dwell with him. See, this is a God who first unsettles us and then tells us the one who unsettles us cannot be broken in his love for us. And that's a pretty amazing God. Now, why does that matter? God's comfort, God's, compa or God's compassion for us is what gives us comfort in the face of all of life's dips and turns. Like, I love what he says to Moses. When Moses says, well, God, who am I to do this? He doesn't pat Moses on the back and say, you got it, buddy. You got it. You can handle this. You're both an Egyptian and a Hebrew. You've got this. No, he says, I will be with you. I've got this. I've got this. And that's why you can walk confidently. I, I think I saw a picture of this uh, one day when I was in Lancaster County Park a couple years ago. I was actually there to do some writing as I was thinking about uh, the preaching pastor position. And, and as I was sitting by one of the creeks, uh, I saw this uh, sight happening. There was a mother duck teaching her maybe five or six ducklings how to swim. And, and they're swimming upstream in a river that has like some rapids in it. Doesn't look like a big deal to me. But you have to imagine, as like a little duckling, these are like class five rapids. And, and you're thinking, why in the world is mom teaching me to swim in this? And it was fascinating to watch because the mother would lead the way upstream and, and most of the ducks, little ducklings, would be fine, just kind of right behind her. But then there's this one. I think that there's always one in whatever situation, right? And, and this one, for whatever reason, whether he got distracted easily or was just overwhelmed, wasn't a good swimmer, would without fail end up falling behind and then just like losing his mind when he fell behind. Like flapping his little wing, wings, uh, I don't know what noise little ducks make, but waking whatever noise he did, and then getting up on the land and still freaking out. And it happened like three or four times. And, and every time the mother turned back around with all the other ones, came back, coaxed the little duck back into the water, and then led the way, started again with the duck right behind him. It happened over and over and over again. Now, what, what gave that duck comfort to jump back in the water and keep going? was not that he was going to be the next Michael Phelps. He, he was a terrible swimmer. I observed that. It was that his mom kept coming around, would not leave him go, and then would lead the way with him right behind her. What gives us comfort 
in whatever changes or transitions we go through is that we have a God who takes our hands every step of the way, who leads the way, who is with us, who will not leave or forsake us, that the one who bends down to our level, bursts with compassion and binds himself to us, is with us, cares for us. Now, I would just want to say this morning, if you're, you're here and you're not a Christian, don't you want that? Like, don't you want a God who's not going to leave or forsake you no matter how many times you screw up? Don't you want a God who's going to be with you no matter what life throws at you? Because that's part of what you're offered in Christ. That's part of what you're offered in Christ is a God who is with you no matter what. And if you're here and life right now is just difficult and frustrating and hard, that is your God the one who bends down to your level, bursts with compassion, and binds himself to you. But I would say, this is only good news if we have a big God. Because otherwise, he's just as affected by the rapids and currents of this life as we are. Which is why God's revelation of his name to Moses then is really good news for all of us. Because it shows us God is a supremely majestic God. Let's continue on. Moses, first of all, asks, who am I? And then his next question to come out is essentially, God, who are you? Who are you? Tell me what you're like. Tell me your name. And we've, we've got to stop and realize, Moses, I think, knows how crazy he's going to sound when he comes to the Israelites and tells them, hey, guys, God met with me in the wilderness, and he told me to come to you guys, and we're going to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let us go. Just, like, picture that scene for a second. They ask Moses, okay, Moses, how do you know this? Well, I was in the wilderness, uh, and I saw a bush that was burning, but it didn't burn up. You, you can picture the eye rolls. Like, the Israelites aren't stupid people because they lived so long ago. Okay, Moses, tell us more. Well, then the bush spoke to me. But turns out it wasn't the bush. It was God speaking to me out of the bush. To which they're immediately thinking, okay, Moses, like how many drugs did you do in the wilderness? They're, right? Isn't that what would jump in our mind? Moses knows they're going to ask questions. They're going to ask, who is this God? Where's he been for the past 400 years? What's his name? What's he like? Why should we believe that he can deliver us from these powerful Egyptians and their God? And so God responds to Moses' question, what, what's your name with this answer? I am who I am. I am that I am. To which one person says, it's the kind of statement that brings up more questions than it does answers. But I would say it's first of all a description of God. That, that he, he's saying, you can't boil me down and define me by simply a name. I am the indescribable, almighty, all-powerful ruler of everything. You cannot simply boil me down into one name. And then he gives a name that is kind of a play on those words, or the first part of that. Tell the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. It's the Hebrew being verb that then makes up the word Yahweh that likely in your translation of the Bible is uh, presented as Lord in lower or small capitals. 
that shows up 6,800 times throughout the Old Testament, over and over again. I am, I am, I am. Let's just stop and think about that for a second. I think it's important to think about that. If I say I am, what you're really listening for is what comes after that, right? Because that's what defines me. I, I am a husband. I am a father. I, I am a pastor. I, I am hungry. Whatever it is, that's what in some sense defines me. And so for God to say I am, period, is to say no one else defines me. I am the ultimate being. I am the absolute being. No one else is like me. And let's just think then for a second, what are a couple implications that come out of that and how they relate to our transitions and changes in our lives? First of all, it would tell us God has no beginning and no end. Right? And we know this, but we, we so often fail to stagger at this. That God simply is. No one brought him into existence. No one takes him out of existence. All of our changes, transitions, roles, and lives have a beginning and an end. God simply exists. The, the 28 years that Pastor Keith was preaching at Keystone seemed like a really long time. Because they were. Some of you raised families in that time. And yet, from God's perspective, that was but a nanosecond. And the same will be true of however long I might preach. And the same is true of whatever changes your life goes through. They're, I don't want to say minuscule, but they're just a nanosecond compared to who our God is. And then that God is unchanging. That everything I am and everything you are will change. Everything I use to define myself will change. God says, I am. I don't shift. I don't change. All that I am, I always am and always will be. And then thirdly, that, that God is utterly independent. Saying, I don't need anything else or anyone else. Say, I am the only all-sufficient being there is. Which then means everything and everyone else, including us, depend moment by moment for every bit of life and breath we take from God. And so does the whole universe. And think about how comforting that could have been to Moses and the Israelites. As they're under Pharaoh's hand, who seems so powerful and so great, God is saying, Pharaoh is under my hand. And who is the king of Egypt to the great I am? He's a speck of dust. And I'll do what I want with him. Now, wh why does all that matter, we might ask? Because as we grasp God's being, it should floor us and cause us to wonder and marvel and be in all of him. And it puts all of our lives as well as all of our changes and transitions in our lives into their right perspective. I've been really into uh, rock climbing, mountain climbing documentaries recently. And by really into them, I've watched two. Uh, so maybe that's an over-exaggeration. But the one I really enjoyed was called The Alpinist, and it's on Netflix. And it tells the story of a young climber named Marc-Andre Leclerc. Uh, and he's known for uh, free soloing mountains, so be similar to free solo if you've seen that. 
uh, but he does not just rock faces, but it might be rock faces along with ice climbing uh, and usually larger mountains as well. And it's a, it's a fascinating movie, in part because it gives you this, these beautiful shots of these incredible mountains, but in part because it also takes you into his mind, because everyone's wrestling with that question of, like, why would someone ever do that? To climb without a harness and ropes? To put your life at risk like that? And at one point, he, he says these words. He says, one of the coolest feelings a human can experience is to feel so small in a world that's so big. The idea is, why do I go to the mountains? I go to the mountains to feel small, to have everything put in perspective. Why do we go to God? To get a big glimpse of who he is and what he's done, to put ourselves into perspective and all of our changes and transitions into their right, expect, or into right, their right place. They might seem so big and so massive in our eyes, but compared to God, who is infinitely bigger, they are but small. And that's what then gives us the confidence to go through any change or transition in this life. To walk through them with confidence. Whatever it is God's leading us through, whatever it is he's calling us to, to live a life of risk because we know the one who bends down to our level, bursts with compassion for us, and binds himself to us is the same one who said, I am period, and all that goes with that. As I think back about the history of Keystone, I love to get to hear stories of what God has done through this church, because I think it displays him as great and awesome. And as we walk through a transition, or as you walk through changes and transitions in your life, here's what I would say I think God wants for us is to continue to see how great and awesome and big he is. And so here would be kind of the challenge. That even as God might settle us in our changes and transitions, that we don't settle. And what I mean by that is, let's not settle for a small view of God. Let's not settle for a okay, somewhat distant relationship with God. Let's not settle for a life of comfort and ease when God calls us to risk and challenge. I've heard Pastor Keith say a couple times that he believes the, the best days lie ahead for Keystone. I hope that's true. But let me assure you from the start, that has nothing to do with me, nothing to do with Pastor Brandon, Pastor Joel, or any other changes on staff or faces that may change. And it has everything to do with us seeing how great and awesome God is and over and over and over again giving our lives to worship him. And if we do that, yeah, absolutely, I would say the best days are ahead for Keystone. Let's pray. Father, help us, help us, help us to see more of who you are. We don't want to settle with what we've already seen. We don't want to settle with what you've already taken us through, with what you've already called us to. We're so prone to lean towards comfort and ease in this life. And God, we, we want you more than we want those things. And so we pray that whatever changes you walk us through this year, in the coming years, that you might loom over those changes as massive and great and enlarge our vision of you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.